Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišar, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Fred Roman served in the Army for 22 years as an aviator and public affairs officer, and he left the armed forces as a lieutenant colonel. He was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot and completed tours during operations Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. So, in his own words, he invaded Iraq twice. He was also a spokesman for General David Petraeus and General Martin Dempsey. I have asked Fred for an interview as March 20, marked the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. Fred is working on a book about his service in Iraq and the impact of the war on him and the others in his life. He said to me that he could call his memoir They All Died, but he can also sleep at night at ease. We discuss his service, the damage the war caused, if somebody, for example, ex-president George Bush should be tried for the invasion, and many other topics. Listen to our conversation. And check also my previous episode about the Iraq war, as I talked to Robert E. Kelly, who had been an International Atomic Energy Agency inspector in Iraq in 1992-93, and he was also there in the final months before the 2003 invasion. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Fred, I have read in one of your previous interviews that you have a grim joke that you like invading Iraq as you did it twice. So you did Desert Storm and also Iraqi Freedom. Those two operations had different goals and also evolved very differently. What was the main difference for you, if I may ask? Uh, the second time I went in, I was older and wiser. <laughs> I know I, at Desert Storm, I was just a young lieutenant, platoon leader, a fine scout helicopter with different mission. The second time I, I went in with a very clear idea of what to expect from combat, what to expect, how to lead my troops more effectively and ensure they came home. I was very passionate about making sure that I did everything I had to do to keep my soldiers safe in this very deadly situation. You know, it kind of moved, right? So we started off just the invasion and then my war kind of matriculated a couple of times, right? So but starting off when I crossed that line that night, I was like, I want to go in, got to do our job and keep my soldiers safe, get my soldiers home. And I, I went in much more of a, a realistic understanding of what the risks and, and were. So I think I was much more sober-minded about it the second time. I even then, I wondered why we were doing it. You know, I, you know even I was, I was even questioning why we were doing it at that point. I mean, the, the run-up didn't make a lot of sense to me, but to be honest, having been there the first time, that time I did feel personally. I admit personally that I felt that we need to finish the business that Saddam Hussein for the first time. And so as, as a person who did both wars, you know, many of us kind of left that war thinking, oh, we really hadn't accomplished. You know, we saw what happened afterwards. The, the Shia, the slaughter of the Shia, the drain of the swamp, the treatment of the Kurds, the people fleeing to the north, to Kurdistan. You said that you wanted to keep your soldiers safe, which is, of course, understandable. But on the other hand, unfortunately, it's not always possible. And you had been dealing with kids, if I can say, with very young people. Of course, great for combat, but inexperienced. What was your method? 
You know, for me, I was, I think for the first phase of the war, I was pretty much a hard ass to be honest. <laughs> I was much more of a disciplinarian than I normally am with my troops, you know, enforcing the rules, make sure they, they were thinking of the risk of a mission. They were, you know, wearing their helmets and digging the holes, whatever they may be. I mean, I, I didn't want to see my soldiers wander off into a minefield and get blown up stupidly. You try to prevent the stupid deaths, they're, they're unnecessary, right? The job comes with danger. Flying Blackhawks in bad weather and night under night vision goggles, inserting troops into combat. It comes with its risks. So I saw my job in a lot of ways with these young men and women is to control their urge for additional risk. As a more seasoned leader, which I was, I was a major at the time, I understood what happens in these situations. The two men I lost in Desert Storm was during a, a night vision goggle mission. It wasn't because of enemy fire. They, they flew into the ground. So I really was very focused on ensuring my troops understood risks and calculated those. To the point where I, I would actually not even assign missions to certain organizations in like subordinate units because I didn't sure they took the risk seriously enough or they would not follow orders tight enough. Um, I actually kept one unit from performing our rescue mission task because I didn't feel they would follow the orders to do it right and safely. And so I think as I went in, I, I was honest with my troops. I would talk to my troops. I was straight with them. I was tough on them. And my feeling was, I don't care if they think I'm a dick. As long as they still think they're able to still think about it in thirty years, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, I know, I, mean, I know. I think this is I'm a like very nothing more than all, yeah. I mean, I used to literally, I used to say, it, I said to some, one of my friends, like, I, I, as long as all these guys hate my guts in a retirement home, I'm fine with it. I'm more than happy to be the bad cop. Sure that we were very strict, very disciplined, execute our missions professionally, treat the Iraqis respect, and didn't create new enemies. Uh, you know that sort of thing. So I definitely came into the second invasion, if you will, with a, a more sober-minded reality, a sober-minded outlook of what the reality of war could be. Fred, as I know, you will be working on your memoir about your service in Iraq and the impact of the war on you and the others in your life. Have you been thinking about some stories that you definitely want to tell in the book? And can you maybe share one with me? Sure. I mean, uh, the book tells the arc of after the later part of that invasion. And when we arrived in northern Iraq at what became the Q West airbase. I was one of the first people to arrive there. Within a minute, a, you know, days of our arrival, uh, the Iraqi civilians reached out to us looking for help because as it turned out, they had gotten their water from that Air Force base and it had all been looted and they weren't, you know, and plus our shooting, they set up a range and didn't realize the bullets were going out into the village. They reached out for help. I talked to my boss and they let me go visit him because I used to say, my, I said to my boss, I, I, went, to, I went to see him I, and I said, let's go visit these neighbors of ours. As a, and he thought I was crazy. I said, I, I slapped my map down. I said, look, here's us and here's these like seven or eight villages ringing us and i said you know i'm from missouri it, those could be our first line of defense or our last line of defense and maybe we should just know the neighbors <laughs> once i got to know the neighbors i discovered they were good people they were farmers they were um some were kurds some were sunni they were just trying to make a, a hard scrabble life in the 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 the, the famous Nineveh plains of or the right the breadbasket of the world frankly at one point and they'd been there for thousands of years before us And it came home to me, the long view of the Iraqi society versus the short view of the American. And that really came to head as we work with the local Iraqis, I ended up falling into the job of helping them do what we call civil affairs. So within months, I was building schools. I was building, God, I built a clinic for Dr. Muhammad. The sheikh of that village was a doctor. We did quite a bit. We were delivering water, you know, all these things. One of the stories that really sticks out with me is we were traveling along and Dr. Muhammad was trying to convince me to let them to build culverts over some of the wadis. Because in the winter, when it rained there, it would wash out and uh, a four minute drive to the city ended up being 35 minutes because they had to go all the way around. So we were driving this early summer, that first summer, and we went down this wadi and came across and I noticed it looked like there was a road. So we stopped and he was looking around and I said, Dr. Muhammad, you know, there seems to be, um, it looks like somebody tried to build a road here. And I 
put gravel down. He says, yes, the British. I said, the, the British? He says, yes, they did in the 1920s. <laughs> okay, how do you know that? He goes, oh, we have a book in the village that tells the history of the village. And, and in the village, it tells, yeah. So literally this sheikh, this guy who you know, spoke medical English because he went to medical school, there's this long memory of the last time a government helped them, which was the British after the last war. And I was like, oh, that's a long history, you know, and really brought it home to me that our, our short, the Americans especially have very short-term memories and very short-term ideas of what is impactful, whereas our Iraqi counterparts have been around for centuries, if not a millennia, and have a much larger view. And so if you think about what ended up happening, you know, we ended up being there for technically 20 years, you know, on and off, if you will. One of the key parts of that is the Iraqis had a much longer view of this engagement than we did, right? We're always looking at the next election, always looking at the next presidency and you know, changing policy, whereas the Iraqis are just existing. So I had to change my views. I mean, I had to understand these people. I had to try and help them with twofold to help keep my people safe while we were there and then to help them have better lives. Mm -hmm. Mohammed, unfortunately, would, would, yeah. Yeah, I know that, in fact, the story of Dr. Mohammed doesn't yeah. have a happy ending. And I, 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 I yeah, <laughs> and I will ask you about this, but uh, let me first ask you about something related to the military issues. One specific thing, the search. You have served under General David Petraeus as the public affairs mm -hmm. officers. In retrospect, how successful or unsuccessful do you find the search? Also, maybe in the context of what you just said, keep your people safe, but also helping Iraqis. Right. I, I think it's about short-term tactical gain versus the larger strategic initiatives. In that sense, the surge at the time was meant to quell the violence as it was growing, flood the zone, if you will, with more troops who could able, you know, take better control and survive. For the surge to work, it would have had to been a much more a long-term project than it was, and it being just a, a year or two, right? So it did quell the violence, at least temporarily. We did, did remove some really bad players from the, the table. In the end, the long-term goal wasn't accomplished right we all we did was sort of got by ourselves some time and some peace save so you know protect our soldiers protect some certain people but the fact that upon our departure in 2011 things fell to boat you know M dr muhammad was murdered the day they evacuated Key west okay the day the americans left the base he was murdered in the clinic i built for him his villagers had to flee for several years because of the, the threats against them from the, the islamic state so while i think there was success from the surge and concept was good and I think in the end, we find with history and time, we find a, a short-term tactical gain could not stop the inevitable. There's no way to say that with Mosul falling in 2014, you know, all the things that happened after after that, you know, I, we left, you know, my, my son-in-law is one of the soldiers. You know, my son, ironically, I went into Iraq on day two of the war and my son-in-law was a soldier of the Virginia National Guard, left on day minus two at the end in 2011. So now being a multi-generational war for my family, and there's just no way to sit back and, and, and anyone with a sober mind say that any of it was a success, that any of it accomplished our larger goals strategically as a nation and for the Iraqi people. I mean, Saddam was removed. He was a terrible person, but, you know, could there have been a better way to do that uh, other than 4,000 of my or 6,000 of my peers getting killed and so, so, so many Iraqis, like all my Iraqis die. I mean, you, you could literally, you could literally call my book. They all die. Yes, in 2017, you wrote on Twitter, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, that at this point, nearly every Iraqi I've worked with, over three tours, has been murdered. All of them. So I guess my question is, if the war was worth it. Because we can honor and mourn soldiers and civilians, fathers, brothers, mothers and sisters, but in the end, my question still will be the same. 
And I want to be honest with you. I started my journalistic career in 2003, and I wholeheartedly supported the war. Now I do believe I was absolutely wrong, and I think this was my biggest failure as a journalist. So was it all worth it? No, no. I mean, the thing about being an old soldier and having lost soldiers, having lost my Iraqi partners and friends, having lost my family in a certain sense because of the war, if you will, and the fallout of it. You know, it's hard to wrap around the idea that whatever Iraq is today, which is okay, um, is was ever the United States' responsibility to make that occur. It's hard to accept there was ever a threat from the Iraqi people, or even Saddam Hussein at that point, that justified the, the massive losses of life, the massive trillions of dollars we spent. And I support the war wholeheartedly every time I went. I volunteered. My second last, my second tours, you can almost argue all of them were volunteered in a certain sense. I was a civilian on 9-11. I volunteered to go back in the Army. Um, I volunteered to seek a job in the 101st Airborne and then and eventually ended up in Iraq. I mean, you could argue that every every tour I did in those three years, those three tours was a volunteer tour because I believed in the mission. But as an older man with gray hair and his beard, I know also that the fallout and the, and the, pain, the pain we pay and the price we pay, which is really what my book gets to, which is that when the politicians are off doing their thing, they're going on MSNBC, when, when Bremer's writing his op-ed saying there was good things we did, you know, when, when George Bush, God bless him, is painting wounded soldiers, they're okay. Um, they're okay. But Hassan's widow and daughters live in Arizona without him because he was beheaded for working for me. Muhammad's villagers had to flee the village and come back and he got murdered in the clinic, you know, so... So while there were things we did good, and I believe that I worked my ass off to try and make the best of what I was given as a soldier, but in the end, we were failed by so many people who should have known better. We were failed by so many people who never had to sacrifice a fucking thing that me and my soldiers, their family members, and my Iraqi partners had to sacrifice. I think there's a certain cynicism and bitterness with me in, at this age, at this point, after 20 years, looking back. And and it's I can't possibly I just can't in good conscience say it was worth it that any of it was worth it. And I have gifts. There are gifts. I, I have these wonderful people in Iraq because you know not all died. They ended up, they were just hiding. I have these wonderful fam second family with Bassam's wife and his his wonderful daughter. Who I actually was just talking to last night going to college in in Virginia now. But those are those are small things compared to the larger question of you know what do we do? And I'm very uncomfortable that the architects of that doing seem oblivious to what they've created so as a, a soldier who was relatively junior guy and doing what i was supposed to do like you said you know so i talked about was protecting my soldiers doing what i could for my iraqi partners in that big picture you know we were used and in many ways tossed aside none of us are on boards none of us are getting you know speaking gigs and at davos you know we're just men and women who uh, picked up the pieces of their lives after they went to combat. Some good experiences. Uh, a joke I make all the time is, you know, combat experiences may vary. <laughs> uh, you know, some people cruise right through. It doesn't even affect them. Some people carry the burden with them for life. Some people actually carry actual fucking scars, both mental and physical. Having said all that, I, at me for who I am and where I am at, at the ripe old age of 57, I can't see any reason why I did and that it benefited anyone to any great extent in the long run. And that's a lot to, that's a lot to measure. I think that's a lot to knowing that I did it, you know, knowing that I followed my orders, and I did what I thought was right at the time. It's a lot, it, it sometimes can be very difficult to manage mentally to accept that you were part of something that may not have been the right thing. Do you think that the Bush administration simply lied to us and that led to the war and breaking of the norms of the international law? 
Or do you think we should still be giving people like Preston and George Bush the benefit of doubt that maybe they they meant good and it just turned out as a catastrophe? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a book somebody wrote once. It wasn't about that war, but we we met we met well. I, I think in the end there was sort of a group think. There was there was a desire to shape a narrative, and the information that was created and or picked shaped that narrative. Uh, I believe that Colin Powell believed. I, I want to believe that Mr. Bush did too. I, I don't know them well enough. Um, I've met him. You know, I've had the pleasure to meet him. He's a very nice man. Uh, he's been nice to me. He's been good to my fellow veterans in, in his in his life since he retired. I, I have a hard time saying, "Yeah, we were lied to," or not. I know a lot of my peers are much stronger than that. Say, so, "Yeah, we were lied to." I also have been in government long enough and in policy and strategy long enough to know you can create a narrative to fit what you need. And and I believe in the end that perhaps there was a, a narrative created using information to shape a story that justified what in many ways was probably one of the most shameful things the United States has done in the modern war. In modern time, I, look, we got a long history doing really shitty stuff, right? But I think in my lifetime, the modern era, one of the one of the most dismal decisions we've ever made was invading a sovereign country based on substantial evidence and a threat. I, I'm an old school guy. I was raised as a, a West Pointer in the 80s, you know, and the, the Powell doctrine that you know, we only went to war when needed. It was short. We had defined goals. We got in and out. I mean, we broke all that, went into Iraq. And there was never a geo, was there, was there a threat that the rule used to be in the old days is, is this a direct threat to the United States survival, right? I don't think we can ever say that Iraq was a direct threat to our survival in reality. And chemical weapons, lots of chemical weapons, nukes, they never had nukes. You know, so, so we did shape a narrative to get our ass in there. And, and in, in retrospect, it was, it was, it was incorrect and people suffer for it. So I think it damaged our country as a nation. I think it damaged our soul. I think it, it's created a, a part of our culture with this, this, I mean, you can even look at the bro gun culture as, as from the Iraq war, all the guys running around there freaking, you know, shooting around corners, their M4s, you know, when, when most of our combat experience was sitting around drinking tea. So, yeah, they shaped a narrative. Um, I think some of them seem to understand that. I think Mr. Bush may be one of them. I'm not sure Dick Cheney did. I'm not sure Don Rumsfeld did. I'm not sure my generals do. You know, I'm not sure my former general bosses that I have do. I think some do. I've talked to a few who get it. I think some others are just not, rather not talk about that. Fred, what do you think about the idea that somebody should be tried for the war? I don't know. Could be me. I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I, I haven't really, I, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I haven't really thought about it a lot. I'm sure that especially an international audience like yours and outside the United States would say, yeah, they, they should be brought to the tribunal. I, if, if, if Putin, I think well, right before you and I went on this interview, I think Putin, they'd say Putin's a war criminal and should be arrested. I'm sure there are people in countries around the world saying, what about Bush? And I would have a hard time, honestly, saying that they would be wrong, right? It's very difficult for me to sit back and say, we sort of invaded a sovereign country, <laughs> you know, with, with, with trumped up reasons. So I think it depends on the audience and their views. But for me, I'm going to probably just defer. But I, I could definitely see where a lot of people would be, would be willing to make that argument. My next question may sound like a whataboutism, but it's really not. Because I 100% believe that we should support Ukraine as much as possible. But still, do you think that the legacy of the Iraq war at least partly undermines the West's criticism of the Russian invasion? Absolutely. I think that is exactly what my concerns is. 
you know, the, the, the Americans at, using the United States has always been that one who we, you know, I believe my heart, we're the ones who followed international law, we respected the rule of law, especially in the modern era. We only did we, what we had to, you know, and it's just, I think our invasion and the, the following does undermine that case. Obviously, it's night and day. You know, what Russia is doing in, in Ukraine, the slaughter, the kidnapping of kids, the rape, the murder, the war crimes, the the using uh, mercenaries as, as fighting, you know, using prisoners. There's simply no comparison to what Russia has done in Ukraine, to what we do with a professional military force that made mistakes as they do. Not everybody, there's there's always bad apples. In our, you know, there's, there's, there's mistakes that are made, there's strategic errors that are made there. I mean, there's always errors, but still a professional military force doing their duty as they saw it are not the same. But I, an international student would sit back and there's, I, they would, I, I could see absolutely how they say, who are you to, who are you to judge anybody? And that, that is the legacy of this thing. I think at the 20 year mark, as a war unfolds in Europe, that is one of the dirty legacies of this war is that it, it undermined America's ability to say, hold on, here's the rules, you know, and because there are many observers internationally who would say, who are you to judge? And it, it pains me to no end to, to sit back and say, I, I can see why you feel that way. As much as I disagree, I, I understand completely why you might feel that way. Fred, I know that you are a huge critic of former President Donald Trump. But do you think that the Iraqi war also contributed to his rise and to the rise of the similar politicians? I think the war and its aftermath also created a lot of mistrust. Maybe there's a certain nihilism we can trace to it that poisons our discussion. Yeah, I, I think I think the long-term ramifications are still being shaken out. You know, that's the thing about history. Sometimes it takes a while to write the book. I do think we can we can pin it all that the, many of the changes domestically and the many of the changes that happen internationally, the world order changing, the rise of Iran as a regional power, the the weakness of the United States as a regional power, <laughs> um, the engagement, the diversion of the United States, our national psyche on twenty years of war, the longest war in American history, the global war on terror, multi generational war that affected millions. The national politics here of, of the effect of right the, the back and forth between the Republicans and the Democrats, the militancy and growing militancy of the right. I think there's a piece of that there where it goes back to that. Obviously, you can't pin it all Donald Trump to Donald Trump, but and is an international movement of authoritarianism that's growing. He's merely one indicator of you know, Berlusconi and Putin. I don't think we've figured out yet how significant the Iraq war impact on the United States psyche our moral compass, our international standing, and our domestic politics have been figured out yet. And part of that reason is because we, we just fucking left. I mean, we still have troops there, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to act like they're not, but there are still troops hanging out in Iraq, right? So I would um, I would say it may take another generation to really kind of wrap our heads around the, how long-term this is. I think a lot of people just miss the Iraq war. You know, it's just, you know, we talk about Afghanistan a lot now because the way that ended, but Iraq seems to be the people used to frame as the, you know, The bad war in Afghanistan was the good war. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, the the millions of people who, uh, those of us who served there, left a piece of us in Iraq, no matter where. Um, the impact on the Iraqi people has not been measured effectively. So, anyway, having said all that, I, yeah, I do think there is there is a you know we we did a big change. We there's a funny meme I like to highlight a lot. It's a Nazi from from a movie, and, and the guy's a Nazi goes. Are we the baddies? <laughs> you know, and and it, it became a bit of a, a running joke, a bit like that amongst my peers who are veterans of the war, saying, you know, we've always been the good guys, you know, and and when you ask your soldiers, when the soldiers who volunteer for service, who United States American soldiers, have to ask themselves, hey, was that was I the bad guy in this in, in this when this thing is told, was was I the bad guy? That's really hard to wrap your eyes around your head around sometimes. 
I know for once I have, I've struggled with that myself is, uh, I know I did good things. The fact that I was literally on a week ago, a week ago on Facebook, I got a Facebook call through Facebook messenger from the son of Dr. Muhammad who, uh, wanted to show me his kids. So I am able to sleep at night with my role in this because I do believe that I did my best. I did my duty. I served the Iraqi people as well as I could in my role and in some ways continue to. And that's the point of my book. My book is to show that the long tail of war is much longer than the, the, the year you're on the ground. It's much longer than PTSD therapy. It's there's, there's a long tail to war that many people don't will never ever know or see and it, it, it's perfectly encapsulated in the fact that a villager from a rural part of iraq was able to use facebook messenger to write a service member who helped his village build a clinic and get a bunch of other stuff and it was important enough to reach out who couldn't even speak english when he got hold of me to just showing his kids i think it's not a question you ask but if how do i sleep at night i sleep i did my duty i did my best um to make good of what it was a terrible terrible situation This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.